better day than Child Dedication Sunday than to talk about what the faith of the next generation is worth to us. If we're going to make a commitment to these kids and parents like we just made, it means we have to take seriously what we invest in them over time. You see, it's easy to say words on a Sunday morning. It's easy to be like, oh, peer pressure, I said I will, so I guess I will, but I probably won't. But what will it look like as we invest in the next generation? Last week we talked about we'll invest time over time in a kid's life to give them history. This week we're going to take a look at investing love over time in a kid's life so they know they have worth. Now, if this is your first Sunday with us or your first Sunday with us in a while or you're joining us, checking us out online, we're so glad you're here. And I'm so pumped because we're in the middle of a series called Losing Your Marbles. And the point of this series is to remind us that time is ticking away. Each one of these balls, there were 936 last week. I'm going to guess there are a few missing after last week. But each one of those 936 marbles or balls represents a week in a kid's life. From the time they're born to the time they turn 18. And we're being challenged as we walk through this series to make the most of every week. Because these balls disappear. Every week. And we never get them back. So over these five weeks, we're learning and being challenged what it means to invest in the lives of our kids. In our culture today, when we talk about investing love over time, we have to define what love is. Because love means lots of different things, right? In our culture, we've watered it down because, one, we don't really have another English word for love, so we say all kinds of things. Let me just give you a, a couple examples from my life this week. I love coffee. You will hear me say this on a daily basis. I love it. I can tell you every different way to brew it. If you want to be bored and lose two hours of your life, ask me sometime about coffee. I love coffee. And I also found out on Saturday morning that what I love with coffee is homemade cinnamon rolls. Somebody brought us COVID cinnamon rolls this week and Oh my gosh, they were amazing. I also love kickboxing. I like being active. I like the mental release and the physical release that kickboxing is. I love my kids. And I love my wife. We say love for all these things. Now, obviously, I don't love coffee like I love my wife. That would get weird. But we don't... We don't clarify what we mean when we say these things. We feel different emotions towards these things. 
I'd argue that culturally we water down the meaning of love or the heart of it when we reduce it to the idea of acceptance. How many of us on a daily basis face something like, if you disagree with me, you must not love me? Or maybe you hear this from your kids when they get in trouble because they did something wrong. If you inflict that negative consequence on me for my negative choice or my bad behavior, you must not love me. If you disagree with me on any political issue or any hot-button social issue of the day, I can't love you. You see, we water down love when we talk about it that way, but I think we see it over and over and over again. I don't think love's that black and white. I think love forces us to live in this place of tension that says, I'm going to love you, and I'm not going to love everything you do, and we get pulled. And when we think about loving the faith of the next generation, we have to stand and learn to be comfortable in that place of tension that pulls us from both sides. Let's turn to scripture. And what I want to do before we even get into the next generation, I want to unpack kind of an overarching view of what the Bible teaches us about love. So we're going to hop around a bunch of different places in scripture today. Uh, because I was sick this week, we don't have sermon slides, so I'll try to make sure I re-say the, sermon, the scripture passage. So if you want to write it down or look it up. And if you're one of those like Bible search geniuses, I challenge you to pull out your Bible and look it up and see how fast you can get from book of the Bible to book of the Bible. And uh, you can stump the pastor maybe. We'll see how it goes. First place we're going to go is 1 John. 1 John's a small book at the back of your Bible. If you've got your phones out, you can look it up there. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. John says this. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us so much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. I think this passage teaches us three key truths that give us a launching point to talk about love and what love is as it originates in the character and nature of God. And so we're going to launch off from this passage into a couple of different ones. But the first truth that we see in this passage is that God originates love. Did you catch it? In John's words, John says, love comes from God. God is love. Love is the very nature, character, and heart of God. We see the truth of this statement unpacked all throughout the pages of the Bible. And I'm not going to walk you from Genesis to Revelation, but we are going to go all the way back to the beginning 
And look at Genesis chapter 1. God created this beautiful world for Adam to live in. And each day as God creates, he steps back from his creation and he looks at it and he says, it is good. And as he steps back after creating Adam and he looks at the whole of creation, he looks at it and he says, this is very good. Everything God sees, everything God has created is good and together it's very good. But all of a sudden, in Genesis 2, it appears that God sees something that is not and that is that Adam is alone. Everyone else has a mate. Everyone else has someone else. Everyone but Adam. In response, God shows love and compassion to Adam by creating Eve. He also shows love for Adam and Eve by giving them the garden to live in. He gives them a purpose to live for as they're to care for the garden and an identity in their relationship with him because they're created in the image of God. You see, even in creation, we see a God who loves his creation enough to give them a place to belong, an identity to cling to, and a mission to fulfill. God does this because he loves his creation, and these actions are not the actions of an unloving God. God continues the Old Testament by giving the Israelites a means to be in relationship with him. You see, he created this beautiful place. We ruined it in Genesis chapter 3. You, you got it. It was all good in one. God saw something wasn't good and fixed it in two, and we broke the whole thing apart in three, right? That's, how, that's the beginning of the Bible. It's super encouraging. Let's go. But then through the whole rest of the Old Testament, he gives them this way to be in relationship with him. But they can't fulfill it. And so ultimately, God's love is fulfilled again when in the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son steps out of heaven and walks among us. And all throughout Jesus' life and ministry here on earth, we see him meeting people in the midst of their brokenness, in their pain, in their illness, in their questions. And he loves them enough to not let them stay there but to pull them out of that and to offer them something better. This is unconditional love. This is the love that originates in the character and nature of God. And maybe one of the clearest or most famous places we see this is John three sixteen and 17. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through it. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus stretch out his arms on the cross and die? Because God loved the world. God loved you and me. God didn't come, John says, he didn't come to judge or condemn. He came to love. He came to bring us back to creation, to give us a place to belong in relationship with him, to give us an identity in who he says we are. 
And he came to give us a mission to go and tell others about that truth. Love originates in the character and nature of God. Second thing John teaches us is that God shows love to all people. God shows love to all people. He doesn't require us to believe rightly, to fix our sin problem, or to live a certain way so that he'll love us. Did you catch that in John chapter 4? Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. God made the first move. He didn't wait for us. He didn't wait for us to fix ourselves and make sure we looked all nice and good on Sunday morning. He came to you on Saturday morning when you're sitting in your pajamas to show you he loves you. Paul makes this point even more clearly. Romans 5, 6 through 8. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. This is the incredible love of God. It's different than the love we hear about in culture. It's a love for all of us. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter where we are, God loves you. Now, church, we lose sight of this and we get confused with this because God loves all people. But God's salvation is available to all people, but is dependent on us receiving it. But that doesn't change the fact God loves you. God loves everyone. We have to choose to receive that love to experience salvation. Let me give you an illustration. Maybe you were, maybe you understand this from your time in middle school or high school, but there was probably a guy or a girl that you loved, right? And you one day worked up the courage to go and tell them that you loved them. And that you, would you go out with me, right? What did that even mean? We couldn't drive. Where are we going? But would you go out with me? And that person looked at us, some of us, some of us, and said, hard pass. <laughs> right? And what that person didn't realize is that they were giving up all the benefits of what it meant to be loved by me in middle school and high school. They were missing out on like four-inch stuffed teddy bears from Walmart that cost $3 on Valentine's Day. They were missing out on the little small heart boxes of Russell Stouffer's chocolate that they could have had, right? Anybody look back and be like, I'm glad they turned that love down. We won't go there. That's not what the sermon's about. But the same thing is true. We offered them love. Our feelings for them were real. Their feelings for us back were not. And that's okay, that's their choice. It's the same way with God. God loves you. If you're in the room today and you say, that's great, I hate God, that's okay, God still loves you. But you won't reap the benefit of that love 
Jesus says, I came. In John 10, verse 10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We won't have that life if we keep God at an arm's distance. We won't have eternal life if we keep God at an arm's distance. But that doesn't mean God doesn't love you. God loves all people in all times. God's word's clear that God loves those who don't love him. And it's clear Jesus says that we should too. Listen to Jesus' words in his longest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43 through 47. Matthew 5, 43 through 47. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your heavenly Father. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? God loves. If you've never heard that before, I want that to sink in. God loves you. You can choose to accept or reject that love. That's up to you. But God loves you. And the last thing that 1 John 4 teaches us is that when we love each other, others see God's love in us. John said, no one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. Church, we need to follow this truth. We need to realize this is true. Our kids, our neighbors, our coworkers, and the others who follow Jesus with us are watching. They're watching you and they're watching me to see what it means to be loved by God. To see how God's love changes the way we love. How are we doing at showing God's love? Jesus took this very seriously. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 23 through 24. So if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember there's someone, that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Paul follows up these words with instructions about communion to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. Jesus says, church, if you're getting ready to walk into this place to worship today and you realize there's division, there's conflict, there's not love between you and someone else, you should stop and go be reconciled with them and then come worship. How are we doing? It's showing the love that's been poured into us. Unconditional love that we didn't earn, that we don't deserve, that every day we like don't follow through on and don't love back. 
when we make our own selfish choices? How are we doing at receiving that love, at being loved? And then because we've been loved, how are we doing at loving those around us? How are we doing at showing God's love to a world that needs to see it? And before you think, ah, Jason, it's not really that big of a deal. Jesus has hard words at the end of Matthew 18 when he says this in Matthew 18, verses 4 through 6. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus just got real serious. Humble, like a child. Teachable. I don't know all the answers. I don't have all the facts. But I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to humble myself and say, I'm sorry when I've offended somebody else. You see, church, our kids are watching. How do we talk about somebody who offends us? I'll step on my own toes, too, just in case you're curious. How do you respond when you're cut off on 116 or somebody flies by you at 95 miles an hour on 116? What are we modeling for them? How are we loving those who don't need love or who need love? Church, the things that unite us are far more important than the things that divide us. And trust me, your kids are watching. Will they see the church love differently than the world around us? Will they see us humbly admit when we don't know? Will they see us offer love to the unlovable? Will they see us love someone we don't agree with? Jesus made it pretty clear in Matthew 22, 34 through 40, what the most important thing is. The teachers of religious law, the Pharisees, came and they'd heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. And so they met together and came up with this question. One of them, an expert in the law, tried to trap Jesus. Teacher, what is the most important commandment? I want to pause right there. A little background. The Pharisees had 600 laws. And they spent so much time categorizing these laws by most important, next most, next most. And they had them all ranked. And they were coming to see if Jesus would rank their 600 the same way they ranked their 600. Is Jesus going to say that the one we think is most important is most important? And Jesus, in the pure brilliance that only Jesus can have, says this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. All of the law, all of the Ten Commandments, all of the rules based on these two things, love God, love people. 
Maybe the hard truth, church, if the faith of the next generation is really worth everything to us, maybe what we need to do is get better at loving people. And maybe we need to show them what that looks like. Love is Jesus' command for us. Love is what he expects. Love is what our kids need. And they need that love over time. You see, church, as we love our kids, as they watch us love others over time, it gives them worth. But it's one thing to stand up here and talk about love a lot. If you have a teenager, you know this is true. They want you to prove it. Don't just tell me, but prove it. I think there's three ways we prove it to them. We prove it by teaching them how love works. I think that's exactly what we just walked through in John chapter 4. Love originates from God. God loves everyone. God loves us even when we mess up and break his heart. We're called to love those around us. That's how love works. But then we have to show them what love does. We have to show them what love does. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Anybody know a kid who needs a little extra patience? Who needs to know that no matter what they do, you're never going to give up on them? There was a time, I know, some of you are like, yeah, we know. There was a time when I was in high school that I was not the kid you wanted your kid to hang out with. And I could give you multiple examples of this. But maybe the one for today is a time I, I, at one time I could sing. I don't know what happened, but I was like in the youth choir. Remember we had youth choirs? Now, I don't know that I really love being in the youth choir, but the youth choir got to go to Myrtle Beach every year. And so I was for sure going to be in the youth choir if I got to go to Myrtle Beach for a, a week. And we would sing at like places where people bring all their RVs and camp. And they'd like, there was a campfire ring and we'd go and we'd play basketball with the kids ahead of time. And we'd sing and then we'd go back and play on the beach. It was fantastic. But a little fact about me, I am ultra, ultra, yet really, really seriously competitive. I hate to lose. Now at 43, I have brought that down a little bit. My family will now play board games with me. Uh, it took a while, but I hate to lose. And I really hated to lose at basketball. So here we are, we're out. We're supposed to be telling these people about Jesus. I'm going to stand up and tell them about Jesus at the end of the night is the plan. And we're playing basketball. And my team is losing. And this kid who I'm there to tell Jesus about is really good. He's blocked several shots. 
you know, we're playing call your foul. I definitely got fouled when he blocked my last shot. He didn't call it. And I don't know what happened. (laughs) Still to this day, but something inside me snapped. And he went on a fast break for a layup. And I didn't try to block his shot. I just ran right underneath his legs. And I took him out and that kid slammed the concrete. My youth leaders came over. They were mad. Let me tell you, they were mad. I didn't sing again that week. I didn't get to have a lot of fun that week. But you know what? Rick, who was my small group leader, who was there, who witnessed it, he made sure I knew it was wrong. And he made sure I knew it better never happen again. And he made sure I knew there would be consequences. But when we got back to the hotel room, Rick talked to me like I was any other kid. Rick put his arm around me and he said, hey, I still love you. Still care about you. Still think God's got a great plan for you. We got to figure this temper thing out. Church, our kids are going to make mistakes. You and I are going to make mistakes. We're going to mess it up. Love means there are consequences for the actions when we mess things up. That's what Hebrews 12 says. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as own children. Whoever heard of a child who's never disciplined by his father? It's all part of God's love. It's part of the love we have to show to the other generation. But the question is, are we going to keep loving them? Are we going to do for them what Rick did for me? Put our arm around them and say, hey, you know what? I still see potential in you. God still loves you. There's forgiveness. And we can move forward. One of my favorite authors and thinkers of our day, Kara Powell, says this, how you're loved will always impact how you live. How you live will never change how you're loved. Let me say that one more time. How you're loved will always impact how you live. How you live will never change how you're loved. Church, we have to help the next generation see why love matters. Jesus said love's the most important thing. And then he showed us when he stretched out his arms and he hung on a cross to pay for the sin that we couldn't get rid of. And he said, I love you this much. One final scripture passage this morning. 1 John 3, 16 and 17. We, knew, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to live, give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother and sister in need but shows no compassion, how does God's love, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, Let's not merely say that we love each other. Let's show the truth by our actions. 
our actions will show that we belong to the truth so that we will be confident when we stand before God. Great Oaks, the next generation is watching to see our actions, see how we love. What we do over time in the life of a kid matters. The time we invest gives them history. The love we show gives them worth. And I hope you're still wrestling with this question. What's the faith of the next generation worth to you? Is it worth enough to love them well? Let me ask you a second question. Think back to your childhood. Who influenced your faith growing up? Who would you say had an impact on your faith development? How did they love you? How did they show you what love does? How did they model why love matters? And how did they love you when you were unlovable? My guess is it took more than just your mom and dad. And that each and every one of us had somebody else, maybe a couple somebodies. And that's why we believe that every kid needs five. If the faith of the kids we dedicated today is worth everything to us, how will we show them over time that they matter? I want to come back to those five questions we ended with last week. Who's your Timothy? Who do you know who needs some love this week? Maybe a generation down or two from you who you need to come alongside and say, I'm going to walk with you. Who's your Paul? Who's your person who is older than you? Maybe a generation or two up who you need to reach out to and say, I need to be reminded that God loves me this week because I'm struggling. Who's your Barnabas? That person who's right there with you, same age, same struggles, same kid age, same stuff, and you're just going through life together and you're like, hey, listen, we're gonna mess it up and God has forgiveness and we're gonna keep striving together. This week's marble. How are you gonna make it count? Which kid are you gonna show? God loves them. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, God, your love blows our mind. It doesn't make sense. It challenges everything we know, everything we think, everything we believe, and yet it never changes. God, for those who are in the room today, I pray that if they've never accepted or they're pushing your love away, God, I pray that they would see and hear that you love them, that you have something better for them. They have to reach out and accept it. God, for those of us who have experienced your love, who know it, God, help us to love those around us the way that you have loved us. We pray all this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.